0: Welcome back, everyone, to this season of The Heart Podcast. I'm Dr. Milagros Castillo-Montoya, and this season, we're going to explore a little bit more of the truth, racial healing, and transformation framework. We're gonna begin our first few episodes with a focus on the area of separation, which is one of the focal areas of this framework. For this episode in particular, we're focusing on one type of separation, segregation. To explore this area of segregation, this episode is going to tackle a topic that is sometimes met with tension in higher education. We're gonna focus on the intentional affirming spaces designed to provide minoritized students with spaces and services specifically aimed to meet their needs, especially in predominantly white institutions. With our guests, we're gonna explore and unpack some of the assumptions, misconceptions about segregation in higher education by focusing on identity-based services, programming centers, and learning communities. And we will consider lessons that we can apply from these affirming spaces for anti-racist teaching in higher education. I now pass it over to Truth Hunter to begin introducing our guest.
1: Thanks, Milagros. For this episode, we have with us Josh Brown, Director of Scholar's House at the University of Connecticut, UConn Scholars House is a scholastic initiative designed to develop the next generation of Black male leaders to address major challenges in society through the promotion of academic success. Also with us is Latrina Denson, Associate Dean of Students, Community, and Belonging at Mount Holyoke College, where she oversees all diversity and inclusion programs for students and other administrative initiatives under the Division of Student Life. We'll begin with our land acknowledgement and then jump into the conversation.
2: We would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we gather is the territory of the Mohegan, Mashantucket Pequot, Eastern Pequot, Scaticoke, Golden Hill Paw Nipmuc, and Lenape peoples who have stewarded this land throughout the generations. Latrina and Josh, we're so excited once again to have you join us to talk about the assumptions and stereotypes associated with spaces created specifically for meeting the needs of historically minoritized students as a part of our effort to explore uh, this concept of segregation on uh, higher education campuses. And so to get us started, could you share in your own words your perspective about the spaces you oversee in your respective campuses? with respect to creating intentional counter spaces for your students and the impact that you've seen of having such spaces with the students that you you interact with. And so I wonder if uh, Latrina, if you could kick us off with this conversation.
3: Yes, um, I definitely can, thank you so much. I'm able to create spaces for our students. I oversee cultural centers and other identity spaces that support marginalized students. Most of our centers, a majority of all of our centers were created on the backs and work of a lot, which for me is really important because I'm upholding the the history and legacy of, of students who were at Mount Leo College before I arrived on the campus. And so that's first and foremost, people that I uplift every single day. When I talk to students every day, I tell them about the history of the spaces in which they're entering and the legacy in which they are continuing to live and what it means to honor those people who, who did that work prior to them arriving. And so, you know, spaces for me like our cultural centers would focus on race and ethnicity, like our Betty Shabazz Cultural Center for our students of African Diaspora to our Latine Cultural Center, the uh, Eliana Ordega, our Zoe Bentia Cultural Center for Native and Indigenous students, and our Asian Center for Empowerment for students of the Asian Diaspora, and we have a Janet Mark Center for Queer Identifying Students. And we now have also a new place, which is a resource center for first generation and low income students that we've continued to uplift our first and low income community. We have a place, actually, the Unity Center, which is the The center space is actually a place where one of the homes of the students who who are there is our multiracial, multiethnic group, right? So thinking about the intersections of those students and where they are, and then our interfaith um, center where we have prayer spaces for students who are Hindu, Muslim, to providing spaces for our our university Unitarian, our pagan Wiccan students to our Christian students of Christian faith. I think all of that is important because we're creating spaces where people can can find themselves. I consider them sacred spaces, home away from homes. There are spaces that are homes and educational homes for those particular communities um, where they can cook, eat, celebrate, worship, uh, meditate, whatever that means to them, congregate with people who have similar values and beliefs and traditions and culture. They're also educational spaces they're also spaces where people can come in and learn but they when they come in and learn they need to know the history of the places in which they're entering because they need to understand the value of those spaces and we also in my yoke have continued to develop these phenomenal identity-based living learning, learning communities so we now have a shirley chisholm living learning community for for students of the um, African diaspora. We have a Mosaic community, which is for all students of color to engage in conversations across difference as BIPOC, as a BIPOC community. We now have what we call the APIDA, um, our Asian Pacific Islander community, that is new. We have a QTPOC for our queer students of color. We have an Lebanon community for trans students, um, TGNC students for um, our queer student collectively um, as well. So we've created the spaces that were actually those LLCs were all advocated on the behalf of students. And they said these are spaces that we want to affirm our identity so that we can have places where we can like breathe and relax and be ourselves so that we have the energy to go out into the classroom and continue to be there and be with our with our peers and grow and learn or engage in student organizations that are are multi-racial multi-ethnic multicultural uh, multi-spiritual spaces and then i can we can still go home if we choose to to our communities and we can literally do our hair the way we want to. We can behave and walk around the, the floor of the residence hall and talk to our friends, and we don't have to explain what we're doing, why we're wearing what we're wearing, what clothes we have on, what our rag what our rag looks like, what language we're using. We don't have to co-switch in our own home because we, this is our space. That is a general summary of some of the work that we're doing, and that's when I sp- speak to students on a regular basis, they say, these are the affirming spaces for me. This is the place I know I can be of sacredness.
2: That's so beautiful. Thank you so much for your answer Latrina. And I, I I kind of picked up on a couple themes. The 1st of which is, which I think is so important and should really be upheld. In my opinion, in higher education spaces is recognizing the history of how we got here. Right? Like you mentioned, like upholding that legacy you know, of how we got here and introducing that knowledge to folks, whether they're students, whether they're community members, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. anyone who wants to engage in this community, it's like, how did we get here? Who built the space that you're inhabiting, right? And then also something that's really cool that you mentioned, if I remember correctly, I I believe it's what you called it a mosaic community, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of like this, you know, cultivation of just different, you know, just interdisciplinary, you know, Mm -hmm. different folks from different backgrounds and i come from a musical musical background i'm not Mm -hmm. sure if y'all are um familiar with the cellist yo-yo ma
3: oh we love yo-yo ma
2: (laughs) i love yo-yo ma as well yes (laughs) awesome yeah some fellow musical uh nerds in this in the space i love it so he yo-yo Ma, what he does is he has every year he calls it the silk road ensemble and what he does is he brings musicians from different musical disciplines together in one space and they just have a jam session and it's like and it's amazing the creativity the beauty and everyone can just bask in their own beauty but they build something together that's unique you know and that when you mentioned latrina that mosaic community that's what it reminded me of in a musical sense you know but it just it brings in that interdisciplinary kind of essence so so R- really, really beautiful um, what you had to share, and I'm so grateful that Mount Holyoke has you as as a leader on that campus. And so, Josh, passing it over to you, really curious to hear
4: uh, your answer to that question. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. It definitely makes me want to be a student um, with Latrina. Um, <laughs> no, um, there's actually a lot of similarities from what Latrina was talking about. Um, so, from, for me, I work in first-year programs. So, that includes working with the Academic Achievement Center and also works with learning communities. So, I'm the director of Scholars House Learning Community, as well as supporting the LC office. And learning communities is something that's been, I want to say, about 20-odd years now. It's been around for a while. So, at, at UConn, we've been creating communities, whether based on major, whether based on interest, we have over 30 learning communities now, it's, uh, and it's almost 3,000 students now that we serve for learning communities. So it's really amazing. And, you know, like I said, that can go from engineering to econ to art. I'm thankful that I, I'm actually serving a identity-based learning community. So there's three identity-based learning communities um, over the one for Black men. Just recently started one for Black women, which I'm really excited about, Soul, And then we have um, one for our, our Latin Hispanic brothers and sisters, LTI. That's really exciting that, you know, we've been able to collaborate and we also get to celebrate um, that Black women have their now, their new community. And their, their director is amazing as well. So it's, it's really been an amazing time. I've been here for a year. With the communities, my community is about 50 students. Um, So it's for first and second year students, and we're now entering our eighth year. So scholars were established by Dr. Eric Hines, and it was established in a time where they noticed just how low the graduation rate, the retention rating was for Black men at UConn. When we talk about like, you know, historically how things were established, something that I've heard is Not only is, you know, UConn a PWI, predominantly white institute, um, I've heard it now it's it's a historically white institute. Um, You know, it's something that's just over in time. It's it's always shown that, you know, it has been a challenge as far as continuing our retention of first generation students, our uh, continuation of our underrepresented students. And one big good, I would say, mechanism is having the communities. And it's everything that, you know, Latrina had just said, was that, you know, we also get to provide them with housing. They get to be on the floor together. They get to take classes together. We have first-year experience classes that we, we hope all students take. But now we have a first-year experience class that specifically scholars get to take, where I can introduce them to the Black male therapist on campus. And we can have a conversation about Black mental health and, and the stigmatisms in mental health, right? We get to talk about, you know, networking, um, entrepreneurship. One big aspect of Scholars is specifically pushing them to understand that there are no barriers for them to continue on into grad school. Scholars specifically is, is here to not only help them graduate, but also prep them for grad school. And I always like to say... I'm not going to make you go to grad school, but I do want to, uh, you to understand that, you know, financially, grade-wise, academic-wise, connection-wise, there's nothing holding me back going to graduate school. And we understand what that the implications are, you know, for Black men going into graduate school. It can be isolating, even more isolating than it is in undergrad. One big thing that's close to my heart and also close to the vision of scholars is traveling abroad. Traveling abroad, doing research, that's something, that change of There's worldly perspective. It's something that helped me as a a lowly 1.8 GPA undergraduate student, you know, Um, being able to travel and not having my GPA held against me changed what I, what I thought I could do, you know, and it even got me excited about, you know, doing research, publishing research, and that's something that's real big for, for our students. So it's really there to be, you know through mentorship, through community, a sense of belonging is what we really like to say. This year, I, I, our our goal is leadership through accountability. And so to have a floor where other brothers are holding them accountable, just being there to support each other and really, you know, push them to encourage them to be those leaders and to go on and build further communities and leadership.
1: Thank you for that, Josh. And thank you for sharing, like, all the various ways that you all support students, empower students, uplift them. And also what I noticed is that you all integrate high impact practices. So these are practices that typically white middle-class students have exposure to that sets them up for internships. It's just sets them up for their future that oftentimes racially minoritized students don't have access to or low-income or first-gen students. So. It is really exciting to see how this is built into this living and learning community. And I love this idea of leadership through accountability, you know, being my brother's keeper. I am because we are type of cultural shift that is happening in this smaller world within a larger predominantly white context. So thank you for sharing that. So. Let's continue to take a deeper dive into this conversation. So some people may feel that having such counter spaces on campus can promote segregation. So, as we shared already, we're trying to bust some of those myths today. And while doing that, can you share some specific examples of challenges that you have faced with your programs and organizations when they are wrongly perceived as promoting or maintaining segregation? How have you addressed these challenges? And uh, we can start with you Latrina.
3: I would be um, like upfront with this. I haven't heard this as much at my Holyoke, as if I have heard at other schools that I've worked at, and so, but yet it's still there. So I always say that up front. And I'm thinking about this because we t- I teach a intricate dialogue on race and racism in the U.S. and at my Holyoke College. And one of the questions we do when we have a um, we do this one part set hot topics, uh, we go from like the bigger concept of what is race looks like globally, so, you know, nationally, institutionally, and then. From Mount Holyoke College, what are some things for hot topics? And every time we, I remember when we first started doing it, we would have live and learning communities, cultural orgs and other identity-based organizations create um, self-separation just to see what they, what students would say. At the beginning, we would have, some people would say, yes, I agree, I don't understand, etc. Over the past three or four years, more and more students don't seem like, yes, they are beneficial. Yes, I understand. These are across the board, not just students of color, but uh, white students. I don't know if that's because they have experienced George Floyd and 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 they have a different understanding. They may not understand what it means for them, and they may not understand true systemic racial oppression. And they, but they understand that these places are important somehow they don't understand maybe how how do I therefore engage in these spaces and can I enter when we say no we actually today we want you to come and be a part of this community they don't really understand when I should be a part of that community but they understand that they should exist which is a interesting place and that may be speaking to Mount Holyoke because I have a feeling when I went if I went back to my other institutions we would have some different conversations about what it means and yet I think the still the challenges are how do we continue to pro- provide the resources for them when when students say that they want these sacred spaces and again what I just said it doesn't mean that I want I am saying that I don't want to be around anyone else ever it's literally saying I need a place to breathe and rejuvenate for a little while before entering in you know it's the you know it's Beverly Tatum's while the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and that is a miss notion, misunderstanding, and I'm always trying to reiterate, trying to share with many people on campus. I explained if it says come and celebrate the legacy of the Betty Shabbat Cultural Center in the 60 years history on this campus, you should come and celebrate. If it says the we're going to have a dialogue about colorism within the black community is probably a place never here not to be via and what does that look like that is the challenge that i tend to navigate in a regular basis because i think people understand but they don't really fully understand within their heart how do they for therefore show up daily um and so that's been my so that's how i'm continuing to navigate you know these the the spaces and what they need. The other things that I've I've doing I've been trying to overcome is some people not all but some people having a hard time recognizing that for many people of color it's hard when they enter into cultural spaces to separate faith and spirituality when they are enter into the spaces they're bringing their faith as well so that faith and cultural intersects. That's a lot of the work that we're doing right now is is recognizing there's some there's like faith and culture are going to be separate and there's some that when i i'm when i even unnecessarily i may not even say that i'm a that i'm that i have a faith or religion my my spirituality is going to show up in how i'm practicing and how i'm i'm engaging as a as a human within my community and so those are some of the areas in which i'm constantly trying to unbreak that like like those stereotypes and yesterday for the first time we had a community belonging dinner was and we invited every single identity base that community belonging supports which includes all of our cultural groups our first gen our and our faith students who are on board we had over we had 120 people attend which was um we packed it and we are really working on trying to help them see how they can be both and are separate and all of it's okay
1: yes thank you for for sharing all of that latrina and and just once again what what I'm hearing as a theme at, around creating these particular sacred spaces and that over time ideas about perceiving these spaces as being a form of self-segregation is starting to evolve in a certain, to a certain extent, you know, depending upon the, the context of the institution. So thank you for sharing all of that. And Josh, if you want to jump in and share from your perspective on this question, that would be great.
4: Yeah. It was very interesting coming into this position and, you know, of course, as anyone, they do some research, right? And one of the first things that popped up when I was researching was that, you know, eight years ago, everybody was not happy that there was learning communities. And I, I see you guys nodding because I'm sure some of y'all were here and it was it was interesting because it it wasn't just, you know, the general student body or, or, or students, white students. It was also some of the departments that were that were black departments or even like, you know, certain people that worked in the culture center and. I I believe that it came from a space from from my understanding of we have certain departments we have certain organizations that should be utilized more or should be supported more and I and I think that's what it came from and and from that sense it made me think of an analogy where at times it feels like we're fighting for slices of the pie when we should be eating from the garden like we shouldn't be fighting for pieces of the pie there's only so many slices when the garden, we can plant more seeds and we can eat more from the garden. Now, when when I think about you know certain certain students that were saying, oh, this is separation, this this was just segregation, you know, I I also had a conversation today that that made me think of this this podcast. Being at the the African American Culture Center, they were talks talk about possibly you know celebrating the day that they were founded, also celebrating the days that they had to protest to get the culture center. And I'm like and I was like, the irony is 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 always you know not lost on me when we had to protest to get this space, and yet now it's somehow we're separating and segregating ourselves. And so I I, I feel like there's there's always a sense of, of of a push and pull of some people not wanting us to have space, and then when we do have space, not wanting how we're we're using this space. And you know i think of juneteenth our celebration i think of when we have you know our celebration of our heritage right When there's there's irish parades we have celebration of english parades we have celebration of french parades. you know i feel like it's it's i think anytime we're celebrating our culture i i think there shouldn't be an, an issue with that and you know even even in those initial reactions i also share just like what some things that latrina had said was that for some students me going to a historically black college versus me, you know, growing up at 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 in Connecticut, now being at UConn, there was times where it felt like students hearing that there's a community for black men. And depending on, you know, which staff or faculty says, hey, you should join scholars, it can come off sometimes in a way of, you only want me to join because I'm black. Or it can come off of a sense of, you know, you don't you don't believe that I can do it by myself. You think that I need to, to do that, and it's a challenge of self-doubt. It's a it's a challenge of students wanting to be doing things themselves. And then when when I'm on the phone and I say, "Hey, I see that you're not in the learning community. Here's some things that we can offer," right? Mentorship, traveling, you know, some so. And I always like to say a safety net where we may not, you know, need to give you these things, these supports up front, but we're here if you need them. It's received very differently when it's coming from someone that looks like them and, you know, those are conversations that we have because they're still very prevalent where I still get the question. Should we have a Should we have these spaces? Are they still needed? And I, I, I'm always thinking that, you know, after years of, of. Special treatment that, you know, Dr. King likes to say years of special treatment of segregation of of redlining of of these things that have happened there's going to be years of impacts, and you're going to need to counter those those years of impact with special treatment right in a, in a different and a positive way even in Connecticut we we talked about learning that there were you know thousands of made up police tickets that were given out and that was that was unveiled that there there are terms of those you know in, internalized you know, racism within the systems, right and you know really I, I like to say the only way that we can counter these things is addressing those issues and and i don't feel that scholars is the solution for that i think there's only so much that these learning communities can do and i like to tell my students this too at some point uconn needs to do more right we can we can start a program and it's a great idea but also it needs to get taken over by the school. Right, And something as simple as a haircut, you know, I, I proposed a program of, hey, let's provide haircuts, right. We did it great. And now I'm also you know following up with now that we've done it and you see that this is a need that the students need, it'll be great for the school to help more, right? Because you recognize that there's not a lot of barbers here for the students. There's not a lot of stylists here for the students. And if you think of a simple way to let the students know that the that the school cares about them and wants to meet their needs, a haircut can go a long way right and you know uh, i i think at the end of the day people will feel some kind of way but the truth of the matter is these spaces these 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 mechanisms these these in academia shows up for different students in different ways um and and truly the work that we're doing is here just to to balance it as much as we can but at the end of the day it, it is you know, our our responsibility to acknowledge and address these issues.
0: Thank you, Josh and Latrina. I feel that listening to what you both have shared in our time together so far is really raising a few, you know, important themes across the two of you. You're talking about that there's tension in this work, right? So there's tension in that the space in and of itself may be toxic or unwelcoming. There is something wrong, right? That there is a space needed for like a break from that. And what Latrina is saying, a sacred space and affirming space. And the idea would be that these type of programs and services can be offered, but that it goes hand in hand with the institution continuing to need to be critical of itself and thinking about, what are our institutional policies and practices that we need to keep working on such that our spaces are not you know so unwelcoming or so toxic for you know any particular student and so there's this tension of like yes this is an important initiative to be engaging in but don't forget that actually the institution still has work to do like this isn't actually the the, the only solution it's part of the the work but not the work to be done. So I appreciate you all raising that. Having spaces that challenge us is really important. So I'm hearing that these spaces are affirming, they're sacred, but also that they can be spaces where we can be critically reflective and like really grow. So in that sense, it's educational. So thank you for all the wisdom you all have dropped. As you know, the podcast focuses on anti-racist teaching. And so, and I see the work that you're both doing as educational practice, so teaching that's happening perhaps outside of the classroom, but teaching nonetheless. But a lot of faculty in higher ed have these tensions show up for themselves. You know, there are some faculty who wanna create a classroom environment that speaks more to their um, racially minoritized students. And at the same time, they're trying to balance that, but I also have to um, make the class For everyone and so this is 10 this this is push and pull i'm wondering if you could like um draw on your own either experience as a student or as a teacher and even today as a practitioner specifically with the work you're doing to offer some thoughts to perhaps faculty who are thinking how can i create like latrina says sacred and affirming spaces in my classroom that really can connect for racially minoritized students wondering if your experiences might help us think of a few more ways to address that josh can i ask that you kick us off in this conversation
4: yeah it's funny because you're you, when you're thinking about things you do in the classroom i'm like oh, i do a lot in the classroom i'm not sure what i can offer something that came to mind when you were thinking about not only conflict resolution but also ways to address Things in the class or whether in the community are Palante Circles. Um, so Palante Circles is a practice, a native practice. And it's something that I was actually had the honor of being trained while in New London with hearing youth voices. And it was something that was, that was being very simple, but it, it was a great practice of going about tough conversations, right? And I think when we talk about, you know, social, emotional learning, when we talk about ways that we can have conversations, awkward conversations, addressing the elephant conversations. I really enjoyed this practice because it, it really gave us a sense of like resetting. Everyone being heard also being okay with 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 not agreeing, but hearing everyone and understanding where they're coming from. So, so the practice really is as simple as sitting in a circle is having like a a talking item right talking stick um and when we are opening this one it's recognizing that you know you we have a, a set of rules when we're talking we are going to share our experiences so the lessons from those experiences will go with you but the stories themselves will stay in the circle it's a it's a nice way of checking in with each other and for me like working with young black men the hardest question the hardest question, I know they already already always here trying to check in with me, too, right now. Um, I, um, the hardest question I ask them is, like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm good. Grades are good. Grades are good. And I'm like, no, what are you feeling? Like, 1 to 10, how are you doing? Because a lot of my young black men are, are used to operating as functions. So being able to sit down and really have a moment of, like, feeling what you're feeling, expressing what you're feeling. Like, no, I don't care how long it takes. We're going to check in. That goes a long way. And that's the first time that probably anyone has really stopped them from running by that question and made them address how they're feeling so that's like a big thing that i try to implement and when we do have like you know things that we have to address on the community i'm like all right cool we sitting down in a circle y'all might feel like this is juvenile but it's, it's a great way of reconnecting with our feelings grounding ourselves and making sure that everyone feels heard, and there's no shortcut to community. There's no shortcut to having those awkward conversations. You really gotta do the painful, slow path of passing that one by one through our community. And you know, there's ways of of doing that. You know, in a smaller where you can do like a fishbowl style, where it's like, hey, can I get you know, ten people to help do this, and then we can hear people from the outside. But that's been a great practice of, you know, going against like what Western education teaches us, right? And really having us sit together and and really, yeah, get to the awkward space of talking about things that have happened. And I've had plenty of convos where I'm like, I messed up, I'm sorry, let's have a convo so I can hear from y'all on how I could do better. And And me going through that practice demonstrates first how they can be vulnerable, and how they can go about being corrected. So that's something I definitely would offer that goes a long way.
0: Yeah, I'm hearing that. I'm, so I'm loving it. So like, this, is, this is where I'm like, I could spend an hour in this conversation. I am hearing that an important takeaway from your experience that could be applicable to educational practitioners inside and outside of the classroom is checking in with students' humanity, like not just seeing them as an academic student or or a student performing towards something or trying to accomplish something, but a person, a human that's in front of you who might have like all sorts of things happening. And just the pause of saying, how are you doing? And really meaning that question can already disrupt the transactional nature of the academy. And so I Absolutely. really appreciate you putting that on the table. And and then you also explain a couple of practices that maybe could be employed in the classroom or even outside of the classroom. But what what I actually really appreciate is that for both of those, the way you described it, it sounds like you know, there's there's like a framework for doing those practices. And it's and it's necessary to actually explain you know, what's the framing around what we're about to do and why are we gonna do it this way? Because in a way, not only are you doing a different practice, but you're helping them learn a new way to engage in education, right? So you're like disrupting Western epistemology around what it means to learn, and then you're offering them a new framework from which to kind of engage in learning and make it count, even if it feels uncomfortable or so outside of the norm. Um, So thank you. And I want a t-shirt with your saying, no shortcut to community. Like, yes, absolutely. Because it takes work and it takes time and it takes investing. So what I'm also hearing is that educational practitioners have to create space and time for community making with their students. Like relationship making with students and building those authentic, meaningful engagements with students takes time. And, and it's really hard in the academy with the rush to do more and with less time and less resources really gets in the way and is in tension with this idea of there's, that there is no shortcut to community, but I guess a way to push back is to know that that that's just fundamentally true. It's just gonna take time. And so making a commitment that that's gonna be a priority is really important. So thank you for putting those things on the table. Latrina, I'm curious if you wanna add, speak to anything that you heard, anything that resonated with you? Man, I was snapping, right? Because what I hear you saying, I'm just gonna
3: like, just put it out there, right? We're like saying, we're gonna be just dismantling white supremacy ideology, point blank, right? And so, and how you do that is really shifting from, because we are in the academy and I was talking, I I was just talking to our new students as we were having our anti-racism trainings for orientation, because we actually do trainings on anti-racism, we have like a two-hour training to introduce anti-racism through like an intersectional lens. And so, you know, we were, I was saying, so I'm going to ask you, you know, after you watch this video, after you read these comments that we, we usually show some statements that says I'm um, from other upperclassmen that are anonymous that says one what is one thing I wish I knew about racism and anti-racism before entering my Holyoke when I first arrived in my Holyoke and I say so don't start with the head like what you thought about the 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 work the the activity I want to know from the like what did it feel like in your body what did it feel like what were like the the like the like shaking, what you're nervous, what your stomach feel like, right? And so that's like, you know, that's the intergroup dialogue too. That's like the beauty of intergroup dialogue. And so I always say like, we want to move, you know, we're, we're really shifting things and we're moving from this very cognitive because we're all smart people. We wouldn't be in the academy if we weren't. I think the smartest people are able to actually bring those together and they can, you know, and, and move from the head to the heart and be able to really share what does that mean fully in your humanity to truly, truly dismantle white supremacy, which is about time. And that is like a concept that we all, including people of color, have colluded with because we have to in order to survive. So we're literally trying to unlearn something while we're dismantling something all at the same time, where we're also trying to strive to be a part of something. So, so the complexity of, a, of that and just being very honest with young people and with ourselves, which took me a lot navigate i remember when i had this moment when one time at ncore i've been in this field for years and at ncore one day i was like oh my gosh i am colluding with white supremacy it's an ideology to exist in this world in this institution that i truly admire and i want to be in higher ed because i want to be a person of color so that other students can see me and can engage and know that they can do also achieve and yet i'm also part of it right i had to come to like to realize that for myself and be like and that is okay and how am I going to continue to unlearn and dismantle and at the same time be a part of and so being honest with that and, and being and for faculty staff being truthful with that yourselves is to me really important because students are struggling with that every day I um, mean as people of color or as from other marginalized communities in order to exist and predominantly white institutions, we have to just really grapple with that. And that's like self-work, that's self-work. And so creating those spaces for that self-work and from, from, the, from the academy, from the intellects, we don't want to do self-work. We're like, wait, no, unless we're counselors or therapists, we, we're not going to do that. But you, we can't we can't create inclusive spaces if we don't, because then we're able to understand why we have one. Person of color to people of color in the classroom, and we're talking about Jim Crow, or you know, a, a, a tough topic. We're able to think about how am I going to engage this student in a way in which feels affirming to their their identity without it being very centered around whiteness, but at the same time being able to educate at the same time, which is already really hard. And so, and then the other things is to think about. I, we just need to be transparent with our students when we are sharing historical information that is actually traumatizing to their existence and experiences, if we feel like that's a part of learning, but do we need to teach that? And most of the time we do, but how do we do that in a way that affirms their existence, which goes back to therefore honoring. It's just, it's hard and it's a a tug and pull and it's a balance and, um, but we can't be afraid of it, but we can't not acknowledge the harm. I think we just sometimes go right in. We want to show in a film that that really is going to create um that that shows genocide of of, of someone's experience and their lived experiences and their ancestry. We need to honor that and then same time provide same time we need to do it, right? And and how do we hold that? That's the to me, that's the hard part. And that's why what you said. And it's like, yes, that's what we have to do. And um, because that's part of the the journey. I can talk all day about it too. So that's what that's from that.
1: Latrina, I absolutely love the energy you are bringing to this conversation and the thoughtfulness that went into describing how we can be more attuned to our students when talking about trauma connected to issues of racism and oppression in the classroom. Thank you so much, Josh and Latrina. We are so grateful for your time and what you've shared with us today. I just want to take a moment and highlight some of the key takeaways from our conversation. First, I want to start by saying that although counter spaces on college campuses have been the subject of criticism, and labeled as a form of resegregation, you have offered another point of view that these are affirming and sacred spaces, particularly within the context of predominantly white institutions, where it is commonplace for minoritized students to experience microaggressions, stereotypes, and other exclusionary encounters that impact their sense of belonging. Thank you for emphasizing that counter spaces are the result of student activism and advocacy, particularly for minoritized students to have a place to be themselves and to be in community. We also appreciate your insight on anti racist teaching and ways that we can leverage non white and non Eurocentric. Pedagogical models such as healing circles that provide an opportunity for every member of the circle to voice their feelings, ideas, and concerns. These circles tend to originate from indigenous cultural practices and promote socio-emotional learning that communicates to students that their humanity is a priority in the learning process. It takes time, trust, and patience to build this type of camaraderie, but you powerfully remind us that there are no shortcuts to community. You all point out that these practices disrupt the transactional nature of the academy and centers relationship building and trust as important anchors in work that is aiming to counter negative separation and foster sacred spaces. When discussing issues of racism and white supremacy in the classroom, you mentioned that it is important to not start with the head. Instead, we should help students to get in touch with what it feels like in the body when we engage in these difficult conversations. You recommend that faculty help students understand that this work is not just intellectual, but holistic, It's emotional, psychological, and spiritual. Moreover, we are supporting our students so that they can engage in the complex task of unlearning racism, dismantling it, and trying to build something more sacred in its place. We are deeply grateful for your work you are doing to support minoritized students broadly and racially minoritized students more specifically by cultivating spaces that affirm them. Thank you for articulating that the purpose of counter spaces are not about resegregation, but about empowerment. And we heard you clearly in sharing that although counter spaces help to enhance the experiences of racially minoritized students on campus, more work needs to be done at the institutional level to create systemic change. Thank you again for sharing your experiences with us and helping us advance our thinking about separation and about anti-racist teaching in higher education.
0: As always, we're thankful for the support from the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning at the University of Connecticut, because it takes a village and it takes heart.